This is TSFPN.com, the Sci-Fi Podcast Network. You found the best podcast in the universe. It's Friday, the 19th of November, 2005, and you're listening to The Secrets. Welcome to this podcast of The Secrets, the podcast for anyone who is serious about writing. The Secrets home can be found at www.stormwolf.com. For the next 15 minutes, we'll talk about writing and how to get you even closer to seeing your name on the spine of a book. Welcome to this 10th special edition of The Secrets. The last couple of podcasts have been fairly heavy, so I wanted to tackle something a little bit lighter. The secret life of writers. That's right. I'm going to pull back the curtain and let you know the inside story of limos, the multi-million dollar book deals, the shameless way that publishers fight over us, and all the other glamorous stuff that is the soul of a writer's life. Well, I, I can dream, can I? I'm Michael A. Stackpole, a science fiction and fantasy novelist, an editor, game and computer game designer who's been making his living as a freelance writer since 1987. I've had 38 books published, and eight of those books hit the New York Times bestseller list. My work's available in nine different languages. And yeah, it is an odd feeling holding a book in a script you don't recognize and you know you still wrote it. My latest book, now pay attention, this is a plug, my latest book, Perchance to Dream, is a collection of short stories, including a story set in the world of my Dragon Crown War series of fantasy novels. And believe me, everybody will be very happy if you buy it for them for the holidays. The Secrets Podcast is an audio companion to my writing newsletter, which is also called The Secrets. If you want to learn more about the newsletter, please head over to my homepage at www.stormwolf.com. There you can find some sample issues and information about subscribing. I followed up my 13-part world-building series last issue with a new series that I'm sort of calling people-building. The, the formal title is Love, Romance, Sex, Sensuality, and all that stuff. Subscribe now and you'll get that series plus the world-building series as part of your subscription. And that'll save you about 14 bucks over buying it as back issues. The secret life of writers is something that Hollywood makes look romantic. They show writers being invited out to tea with editors, spending long amounts of time with them discussing literary merit and artifice, lofty concepts eclipse realistic goals as conversations extend late into the night over brandy and cigars. Most people assume that once you've sold one book, you travel only by limo, light Cuban cigars with 50s, and join the cultural elite who set trends and then sit in witty judgment over those who actually follow those trends. As my tone might suggest, that's not really the reality most writers know. I mean, I'd love it, and I certainly hope there are some of my brethren who have that life. Unfortunately, most of us work for a living, and I mean that in several ways. The average writer makes $5,000 a year, so for every Stephen King, there's someone toiling away long hours making a buck fifty writing up garden show reports. In many ways, it's like farming. As the joke goes, how do you make a small fortune in writing? Well, you start with a large one. Or my favorite, what's the difference between a writer and a large cheese pizza? Well, the pizza can feed a family of four. As dire as that might sound, and then we'll talk more about money in just a minute, uh, it's got to tell you something about the trade if folks are willing to pursue it avidly despite the poor prospects of a return. The fact is that writing is hard work, but it's also fun. And when you have a good day, it's a great day. And when you have a bad day, well, it's no worse than a bad day at any other job. At least you get to work inside and there's no heavy lifting. And best of all, the joy of you're seeing your name on the spine of a book, that never goes away. 
That said, we're going to play a little game of Let's Pretend. We're going to pretend you've finished your novel and you've sent it off to a publisher. And we'll talk next time about how you actually find a publisher and more of that process. Right now, this is what you're going to go through after your book's been accepted. First off, you are going to have to wait, since even the best publisher will take a couple of months to respond. During this time, I recommend you keep writing. Back when I was at this point in my career, I made the decision to write something new, not something that was the second book in a series. I think that's wise advice. It grows you as a writer and stops you from putting a lot of work into a series that might never catch on. Why do publishers take so long to respond? First off, editors have a high volume of work. Not only are they looking for new talent, which means reading lots of manuscripts and foreign editions of books, they're working with authors who need lots of help with their books. They're working with authors who are late with their books. They're working with authors who turn in books that are too big. In other words, they're actually stuck editing. They also have production consultations, acquisition meetings, and pretty much anything else you can imagine that encompasses working in corporate America, even down to little fire drills. The acquisition of new books will take its toll. If a house publishes two dozen titles a year, they're likely to have one or two editors handling that line. They might have a couple of assistant editors and clerical personnel, but even if each person were to shepherd four books through the process in a year, it's a heck of a workload. And then you have to remember that for each book they take, they've likely had to read through a dozen submissions. Now, imagine the worst book you've ever read. And remember, that was the best of the competition. This gives you the idea, gives you some idea, of the horrible stuff that resides in what's known as the slush pile. Reading slush isn't as bad, say, as mucking out a stable for a living, but it will leave scars. Let's assume your book is pulled out of the slush pile. The editors want to acquire it, so they have to go to a committee meeting and defend their choices. A book can be rejected at that stage for reasons that have nothing to do with its merit. If there are two books up for the June 2007 slot and your editor doesn't have as much juice as someone else, you've got a problem. Now, selling a book does have odds so much better than you're catching the avian flu, but it can be a tough battle. My first novel, by way of example, was called Tally and Revenant. It was rejected by Bantam back in 1987. My editor wanted it, but she was overruled by her supervising editor. She then went to her supervisor's boss, which was a pretty gutsy move. But the book was turned down again. All I knew at the time was that Bantam had said no. Later, when I learned the true story, I talked with the editor, Janice Silverstein, and ended up selling Once a Hero to her at Bantam about seven years later. Janet was willing to work with me because she remembered Italian Revenant. And in 1997, ten years after Bantam had rejected the book the first time, they brought it out and has remained in print ever since. Of course, in the interim, I'd actually done these Star Wars novels and they'd hit the New York Times bestseller list. So a book that had been too big to publish because the author was an unknown suddenly was a lot more acceptable. It didn't hurt that the whole fantasy market had changed as well, due largely to Robert Jordan's success, and fat fantasy novels were in. Of course, your book isn't going to have any of those troubles. Your editor calls you up and offers to buy it. They offer you $3,000 advance against royalties of 6% on a mass market edition. They'll send you a contract for that book and one more. Second book will be due in about a year, so you'll have to send it in right around the time that your first novel comes out. Okay, what does that all mean? First, an advance against royalties is money the publisher pays you. 
it's a loan of sorts. It'll be earned back through royalties, in this case, six points or six percent. If the book costs $5.99, you'll make roughly 36 cents per copy. To earn back your three grand, you're looking at having to move about 10,000 copies, more or less. That doesn't seem like that many copies, but in reality, it's slightly above the average for a first novel. They'll offer you another three grand for that second novel. They'll give you half or maybe a third on signing the contract, another third or a quarter when you deliver an outline, and the last payment when they accept the manuscript. Some publishers even split the money out a little bit further, promising a lump when the book is printed, but authors try to avoid that on-publication payment. See, we're responsible for handing in the outline and getting the book done, but we have no control over when the book will be published. That last payment could extend pretty far into the future if the publisher cuts the number of books they do per year. So instead of doing 12, they're only doing 6, which means now they've got a backlog and your book gets caught there. But this is the basic sort of deal you'll get for a first book. You can see why the first bit of advice authors usually offer new writers is don't quit your day job. Building a career is not something you do overnight unless you're very lucky. While it may be true in general that being lucky is better than being good, in writing, good will keep you in the game longer. Now some of you will be wondering where agents come into all of this. One of the old saws that's often repeated is that you can't sell without an agent, but you can't get an agent without having sold. The classic Catch-22. This actually isn't true. Through attending conventions and workshops, writers can meet editors and establish a relationship where the editor will invite the writer to submit their book directly to that editor. Unless an agent's list is full, there's not an agent in the world who refuse to take you. When you call them and say, hey, Bantam just offered me a contract, you want to negotiate the deal? Negotiate deals is exactly what agents do. They know what similar books have gone for. They know what clauses can be struck from con contracts. They have contacts with other agents who can represent your work elsewhere in the world or to Hollywood. They can be talent scouts. So when an editor says, I'm looking for someone who could write a novel in this series that Tom Clancy wants to start, your agent will put your name on the top of their list. For all of this work, agents get 15% of the money that work makes and up to 20% of foreign deals and certain other subrights. While this might sound like a lot, when they double or triple a basic offer, it's money well spent. As my brother noted to me, hey, 85% of something is better than 100% of nothing. Amen. Okay, you got your deal. Now the hard work begins. The first thing will happen is that your editor will send you a revision letter. This can be next to nothing or arranged to an epistle that says pretty much the equivalent of, hey, I like the font, quality of your paper was nice, but the story, we need some work. We'll start here at page one. They could order a complete rewrite or just tiny touch-ups. It depends on the book, the editor's mood, and other factors that pretty much can only be read in the entrails of chickens. This revision letter can be a test for some authors. I know of one guy who didn't want to make the changes. He refused, and the contract was subsequently canceled. It's been my experience that no editor asks for changes they don't think will make the book stronger, and no editor is immune to negotiating points on a book. Back with Once a Hero, Jana asked me to include the story of a past event that I'd only hinted at. Our hero, Neil, has a big, hairy, nasty creature called a Dreel as a slave. Neil carries bite scars over a hip from a fight where he bested the Dreel and enslaved him. Jana wanted to see that battle included in the book, but I didn't want to write it. 
I asked her why she wanted it included, and she said it was because she felt Neil was a bit too perfect. She wanted him humanized a bit and made a bit more normal. Well, doing that was a piece of cake. I added another character into the book and accomplished that effect in about a thousand words scattered here and there. I didn't include the fight story because I figured that whatever the readers imagined had happened would be a lot more dramatic than anything I could write. Jana got what she wanted. I was happy with the work, it was all cool, and the book was stronger. The revised manuscript goes back to the publisher, and then you get it back again. This time it's been through a line edit, or copy edit. An editor goes through line by line, word by word, picking up every misspelling, all the missing punctuation, and they make sure you really meant what you actually said there. They'll tag words used incorrectly, they'll put things in the house style. This means they translate your work into conventional English. This can be a problem sometimes. I grew up in Vermont, and in the regional English of New England, the past tense of dive is dove. In the Midwest, it's dived, and that's what the line editor or copy editor will change it to. I change it back. I also happen to hate the word farther. I prefer the word further. Farther only refers to distance, whereas further refers to distance and everything else. Copy editors will switch further to farther in some cases, and I'll switch it back. It's my book. I have the right to decide which words will go there, even if I'm wrong and end up looking like an idiot. After the line edits, you get to see the manuscript one more time. You'll get a stack of pages that used to be referred to as galley proofs, but are now just called page proofs. Well, some folks still call them galleys, and I'll make that slip from time to time. These are pages that look exactly the way the book will look when printed. They're typeset and have places for maps and anything else that's going to be in the book. You get to look them over, make any last-minute changes, correct typos, and make the book as perfect as you can. You turn them in, and the next thing you wait for is the printed book, which could show up in your hot little hands as much as a month before it ever hits the stores. You've noticed that I've not said anything about covers and how they're put together. Well, that's because they're largely out of the hands of authors, especially at the beginning of a career. Covers are tools to use to sell books. So the publisher's art director will pick out an artist who will turn out a great cover and that will get readers to pull your book off the shelves. That's their job, and they do it very well. In my career, I've been allowed to consult on exactly four of my covers. Once was because I happened to be in New York and visiting Bantam the day that they were discussing the cover. Once, with Perchance to Dream, the cover existed before the book did, so I was able to get it on the book. The other two times, my suggestions were ignored. And, of course, you're wondering how there could be a cover before the book is done. Fact is that I've seen covers of many of my books before I was ever through writing them, and have even had to adjust scenes on the book to match the cover. One situation even forced me to change a springtime scene into winter, because I'd only seen a fax of the cover and didn't realize the ground was covered in snow because it came in kind of gray on the fax. Back cover copy and taglines on books are in much the same position as the covers. They are sales tools, and most writers couldn't write sales copy if you held a gun cocked by an ear. Having worked in the gaming industry where I had to write ad copy, I've got a bit better grasp on it than that. I recall actually having the cover copy for Italian Revenant faxed to me. I didn't like it and emailed back a note that said, you know, if you change the word king to cattle baron and the word warrior to cowpoke, this copy would describe a western. I then wrote up something I thought was better and suggested they use something like that. 
I fully expected the assistant editor to sit down with a marketing guy and hack my copy into something that would work. About four months later, my editor handed me a copy of the cover. I looked at the tagline on the front and thought, hey, that's not bad. And then I started reading the description on the back. I liked it. I liked it a lot. It captured the book perfectly. It was intriguing and didn't give anything away. And when I was about halfway through reading it, I realized it was the copy that I'd written. They'd just used it verbatim. I'd love to claim that's why the book has stayed in print for seven and a half years, but I think it's because of the gorgeous Mark Harrison cover. In fact, I like the cover so much I bought it, and I have it hanging in my living room. Now, if you wonder why the cover and the sales copy sometimes give away critical points in the book, you have to realize that the art director and marketing people probably have not actually read the novel. They're working from the synopsis or the outline, and those puppies tend to be full of critical points and giveaways, since that's what sells the book to an editor. Many covers feature scenes from the first few chapters because artists are only sent the first hundred pages of the manuscript to read before they choose a scene to paint. But none of that really matters. You forget it all when you get a copy of that book in your hands. There it is. Your name. Your words. You've always hoped and dreamed you could write and maybe someday have a book of your own. And now you've done it. No one can ever take that away from you. When folks ask what you do, you can say you're a writer. And when they ask what's new, you can show them your book. It's an accomplishment very few people get to claim. Heck, it's one of the few jobs where you can win a Nobel. If folks knew how hard it was, they'd hand every writer a gold medal and a purple heart. And when they learned how rewarding it feels, they'd take them right back away again. And the best part of it all is that you can do it again and again, with each story being new, your skills becoming sharper, and your sense of story more keen. Getting better is how you have a career. And I know each one of you is going to have that career. But look, this just describes the first part of it. I'll let you revel in this a bit for a week. Uh, next time we'll hit some oddities the job will bring with it. We'll find you a way to get a publisher. Um, you'll see that this is kind of a weird business if it's actually a business at all but that'll be our thanksgiving edition and hopefully it'll live up to the billing this is michael a stackpole for the secrets you can find out more about my writing newsletter at www.stormwolf.com including getting some sample issues to look at and you can subscribe and think about this if you subscribe now before thanksgiving you get all these back issues and it'll give you something to do the day after thanksgiving so you don't have to go out and shop because lord knows you don't want to do that if you do want to shop, however, and you go to Stormwolf, you'll see my latest book, Perchance to Dream, right there. You can click on the cover, learn more about it, and it's got links so you can go ahead and buy it. So think about that. This podcast has a discussion forum at www.tsfpn.com. And come on over there, ask some questions, talk about things, give me some ideas of what you want to know more of that come out of this particular podcast. Uh, you ask it, we'll cover it. And look, this is one really cool piece of news. I am just so tickled. Uh, yesterday, on the 17th of November, the Arizona Republic published their Best of 2005, and The Secrets was selected as the best podcast originating in the Grand Canyon State. Now, that may seem like a small category, but this is a really cool thing, and I'm really happy, and I want to thank all of you for listening, because if you guys weren't listening, participating in the forums, and emailing me questions, you know, I just wouldn't be doing this. So, again, thank you. I hope this is working for you. And I'll see you in another week. This podcast is copyright 2005 by Michael A. Stackpole.
Thanks for listening. Please share the secrets with your friends and good luck with your writing.